Um, Monday, we had, uh, or I attended a school board meeting that I didn't really need to attend. I just sat in the back and doodled for an hour. But uh, the school district approved our, our lease uh, across the street. So our long-term lease is approved. So I got, uh, I've already got invoices. So <laughs> they, <laughs> no kit Friday, they called me. Who do we send the invoice to? So uh, I thought it was great. So praise God for that. It really answered our prayers. And second, uh, on Sunday eve afternoon, we got to go tour Hawthorne. Uh, what's the scoop? I think about 42 of us were there and got to pray, look around, sing, and uh, dedicate the space. That was awesome. We're, we'll be working on some maps on like where to park, where to walk in, and all that stuff. So we're really excited. That's January 5th. So we'll start the new decade, 2020. Crazy. In a new space, in a new season. That's 42 days away. No, no it's just 42 days. And uh, I mean, Thanksgiving will be here, and then Christmas, and then New Year's, and then um, that. So we have four Sundays left after today. And then um, if you missed last week or you didn't grab the handout, we're closing our series on You Are Not a Machine, How to Work and Rest. And uh, we have this uh, seven week. Um, Sabbath challenge, uh, we got a digital version if you would like it, ask me and I'll email it to you. But there's some left over on the table with the t-shirts. If seven weeks was daunting, it's now six weeks because there's now six weeks left in the year. So um, this is just kind of a practical way that you can work through, okay, how do I Sabbath once a week for the rest of this year, which would be a great way to approach the holidays and not be crazy. So I'd encourage you to, to do that. Whenever I was a young kid, um, I in, uh, always loved the drums at church, like every kid who walks in church, like the shiny nature of them, and they're loud. And I don't know, if you've ever hit a drum, it's pretty cool, because uh, the tension on the, in the head is really tight. You hit a drum, it like bounces back. It's not like you just hit like it. So it's kind of fun, because without a whole lot of effort, you can make a lot of sound really fast without really like wearing yourself out. So I always wanted to play the drums. In seventh grade, I uh, elected to take band, and of course, I picked the drums, so I was really excited to learn how to play the drums. And much to my dismay, I learned that for the first semester, we would not be touching drums. So I'm the seventh grade kid, sequestered not to the band hall, but to a practice room where I think there was like orange carpet. It was definitely built in the 70s. And we were given two music stands, a rubber practice pad, and some drumsticks. And so we would have to set up a music stand. I'm going to grab one right here real quick like this, and our little practice pad would go on the music stand, and then we had a, another music stand with our sheet music, and um, we would, uh, that was our drum for a couple of months, not shiny, not loud, I mean the rubber made no sound, and it was dead, and so uh, we had, I was in a class with like three or four kids, and we had an old retired band director named Mr. Tilford, who uh, was coming out of retirement because he was bored, but he would show up like at 9 a.m., smell like he already smoked a pack already, beer on his breath. I don't know how they let him in the school. I mean, if it happened today with social media, he'd be toast. But he'd show up, and it was kind of cranky, and he had this long conductor's wand. And so how we were instructed to play was we first had to learn how to read music, and then we had to be disciplined to say what we're reading so we'd have to read, you know, one and a two and the 3D and the four. And we'd have to, like, read before we could play it. We had to read it and say it out loud. 
And then um, he would count, he had a music stand too, and he would take his wand and he'd hit the, the little stand, kind of make a, a sound like that, right? So he'd count off. We'd have to tap our foot, read the music, count, and then play on uh, this little drum pad. It was like not what I was thinking whenever I viewed that glorious setup. And if we did not tap our foot, and if we did not count out loud, if we rushed, if we, uh, you know, drug, I think that's how you say it, he would take his conductor wand with beer on his breath, and he'd hit us. <laughs> no lie. So little, you know, eager to please, perfectionistic, seventh grade, skinny white kid Drew was like, <laughs> like, I got hit one time. I did not want to get hit. And just he drilled into us the sense of rhythm. And like, the drummer's job is to be the backbone, to be the skeleton, you know. Like, it's all about keeping time, keeping time. And we had to read the key signatures and all this stuff. And I hated it. It was awful. Then January came when we got to go into the, the drum line. And um, I found out with lots of practice and with my drill sergeant, Mr. Tilford, and his pack of cigarettes every morning, uh, I uh, was like a really good drummer. And so in eighth grade, I was first chair. My freshman year of high school, I was second chair. In the remaining three years of high school, I was first chair. So out of you know, five years, I was first chair uh, four times. I was, uh, by God's grace and a lot of effort, a pretty good drummer. My, my sophomore year, uh, my, my junior year, We'd be at football games playing, and we always had third quarter off. That was kind of the thing. You'd get the third quarter off and go get Skittles and a Dr. Pepper, because that was a sacrament back in those days. And so we would go, and this like old guy would always come up and know my name and start talking to me, and I thought it was kind of creepy. So I talked to my band director, and I was like, who is this guy that keeps showing up to my football games? And like every third quarter, as I'm trying to you know, receive the wonders of Skittles, he is uh, like calling me by name and talking to me, and it's creeping me out. And she said, oh, he's the president of the music college at MSU, and he's coming to the football games to watch you play and to watch other people play. My senior year in high school, he sent me a handwritten note that said, Drew, please, talk, please call me so we can talk about a scholarship. You know, so like the guy over the music division is like, so I was that good. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the last time I played the drums, but... Um, so to this day, what's crazy is I can go into a restaurant, be eating, hearing music overhead. I can be you know, humming the tune. I can go into the bathroom where there's like elevator music playing, a completely different song. I can go to the bathroom, wash my hands, because we always wash our hands, and be singing the song in my head that I had heard while you know, out in the, in, the, in the restaurant, in the dining room but there's a different song playing in the bathroom, and walk out, and nine out of 10 times, I'm on the beat to wherever the song is still. And it's been like a minute or two minutes, whatever. Because Tilford drilled in me this sense of like a metronome, right? And um, I think the Sabbath is like that. Now, at some level, the illustration breaks down because I don't think God or the Sabbath is like Mr. T with his you know, stick beating us. But if we practice enough, the Sabbath, what happens is we start to get almost hardwired in us this like muscle memory, this like rhythm that helps us just keep going even though things around us are all changing and 
sometimes slow or fast or chaotic, but it kind of keeps us centered. I was doing some studying on this, and I can't find the book that I read. I looked forever this week to try to find this story. Um, but I, this fall, I found the story of um, the, the, some of the Jews that were in Auschwitz. You know, when, you, when, when they walked in Auschwitz, they, they were stripped of everything, their pocket watches, everything, their coats, everything. And there, some, of, some of them were for like three years. So, so it's very uh, uh, easy to lose track of the day or the time, the month. You wouldn't know the date. Um, and there were Jews who, in Auschwitz, not knowing what day it was, when the sun would set on Friday, even though they were malnourished, even though their feet were frozen, even though they were exhausted mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, not knowing that it was Shabbat, because their bodies were ingrained with this sense of rhythm, while in Auschwitz, they would suddenly feel the presence of God come upon them Friday evening. And the Sabbath would keep them while in a concentration camp. And it's kind of this, uh, this kind of surprise, because most evangelicals that I've come across look at the Jews and go, those religious people, like they even have a different elevator on Shabbat, you know? And, and we can look at some of the things that, that, that Israel does, like, okay, you're missing the heart of it, right? You get that. Like there's like uh, one of the rules for Shabbat is you can't, um, you can't travel unless it's over water, because it'd be work. And so literally there's accounts of people taking a bottle of water, putting it under their car seat, so that they're traveling over water. Like, no lie. Like, that's how crazy some of this can get, right? But the point is, I think it's fascinating that if practiced enough in rhythm, you could be in a concentration camp and your body could tell you it's time to experience the presence of God in a deeper way. I thought that was a really neat uh, that, That's fascinating to me. We're going to uh, close our time together in John chapter 15, the classic text on abiding in Christ. I'd love for you to turn there with me. I think it's 901 and the Bible's around you, or if you have um, your phone, you can pull it up on there. This is the, the, one of the last things Jesus taught his disciples. Um, we have the saying, famous last words. Uh, I have been told, I'm not a military guy, so I know many of you are in the military, you'd have to confirm this, but I've been told that in, in the military, the last command given to you is the most important command because it's the thing you need to do next. And so um, I'm assuming that's right. This sounds right. I'll believe it. So this is one of the last things Jesus uh, tells. This is on the night Jesus was betrayed, on Thursday night. He has already celebrated Passover with his friends. He's washed the feet of his disciples. He's given them the new mandate to love one another, which is where we get the word Maundy Thursday. Maundy is Latin for mandate. Judas has left him to go betray him. And they're on their way to Gethsemane to pray, which was a favorite place of Jesus. The text says that he often withdrew to Gethsemane. This is why Judas, because that's the reason why Judas knew to go there. So they're in route from the upper room to this garden to pray. And it's Passover. So while they're going, uh, the temple would be on your left. And it's Passover, so the gates of the temple would be open, and the great candelabra is lit, and the thousands of oil lamps around the city are lit, and the city kind of has this magnificent glow, and the Passover moon is out, okay? And on the gates of the temple was this giant metallic 
vine because this, the vine is the symbol of Israel. Much like America looks at the bald eagle as our symbol, or Texas looks at the blue bonnet, and we kind of look to creation, we find these things that we identify. Um, Israel's version of the, of the bald eagle is the vine. It comes from the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 80 or somewhere around there where it talks about God transplanting a vine out of Egypt. Right. So they have this huge symbolism with the vine. And it's, I think, gold, and it's on the, the gates of the temple. You can see in, because it's Passover, the Passover moon is highlighting this vine, right? And that's on the left. On the right-hand side, you see the fields, and you see the vineyards, and all the vine dressers out there with their lamps tending to the vineyard. So this is the context of John 15, leaving the Last Supper, on the way to Gethsemane, about to be betrayed and arrested, on the way to the cross, the last things that Jesus wants to share with his disciples while he's in between the shining metallic vine that's on the gates of the temple while he's on the other side, the symbol of economy, the vineyards. He says these words, I am the true vine. Some translations say, I'm the vine, the true. For a long time, I didn't understand why he threw in the word, the true vine, because sometimes you'll hear people quote this and they'll say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. That's not exactly what he says. Uh, I'll say that later, but right here, it's, I am the true vine. And we get this picture of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, standing in between the symbol of religion, the symbol of nationalism, and the symbol of the economy. Both are images of vines, and in the midst of that, in the midst of religion and nationalism and the economy, Jesus, on the, on the way to pray to be betrayed, he says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. So if you're keeping track, no one's exempt from pruning. If you bear fruit, you're pruned. If you don't bear fruit, you're pruned. Everyone's pruned. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And then a word comes that he will use 11 times in the remaining 11 verses. He says, abide or remain or dwell. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For, this is key, apart from me you can do nothing. It's so true. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Sounds fun. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you would bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples or just to show evidence that you are his disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy 
may be full. A lot of people think God's a cosmic killjoy, and what he's teaching here is just like, he really wants us to experience his joy in us to the fullness. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my in, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. But I'd like to kind of just, there's so much in John 15. Um, I think it's, if, if you come to know the Lord and you know nothing, there's a few places in Scripture that would be a great start to your discipleship, and John 15 is one of those. The Sermon on the Mount's a great choice. Ephesians 2 is a great choice. The uh, Corinthians love chapter is a great choice. John 15 would be an excellent choice because the sooner we learn apart from Christ we can do nothing, kind of the better the journey. And just it, all, it always comes back to abiding in Christ. It all comes back to abiding in Christ. And so this is such a crucial foundational text, but I want to show you the rhythm that is in here. And um, I had known this text my whole life, but it wasn't until a few years ago uh, until someone showed me a graphic because I'm a visual person um, that I was able to make sense of this. But I want to show you that there's this, there's this process here in the text. It's, it all starts with abiding or resting or dwelling or remaining. Um, uh, if you talk to people who have... Uh, I reached out to some vineyards one time to ask them about this. They thought I was crazy, but what they told me was that uh, when you cut a branch, you cut it really close to uh, the vine, and then the vine develops a wound around it and like grows around it, and the branch is still in the vine, but you don't see it because it's just it's so small, and it's hiding in the vine, and the vine is wrapping it out. And um, surely if you've cut a tree, you've seen a tree kind of do that. It starts to wrap around whatever you, and that's pruning, that's abiding, is just letting Jesus just kind of hug you and cover you, right? Abiding, as a result of abiding in Christ, what happens is naturally, his life in us grows, it's just a natural outswing, to the degree of fruitfulness, that there's just fruit, which is different than work. Work is the result of our works, fruit is the, is the silent result of, of God working in us. And then he says, this is what I hate, and then you get pruned. Because I'm like, why couldn't we just hang out in the fruitfulness and just enjoy all the bounty? Well, he wants more fruit, so he prunes. And we go back to abiding. Now, I think we have a slide which is like a pendulum, which this is, really, this is what really helped me. I'm a visual learner. You may not be, and I apologize, but if you're a visual learner, this really helped kind of put this thing in motion because I'm a drummer and I understand rhythm. And just the rhythm of this, just kind of the, it even like this is basically a metronome. It's kind of what metronomes do. They go back and forth, right? Is it begins with resting. And as the pendulum moves towards work and fruitfulness, we grow, we find fruitfulness, we work, and then it can't stay there. And I think that's kind of when we fail to Sabbath. It's because we're just trying to hold the pendulum, you know, far right. You know, more production, more fruit, 
more getting things done. And then we can't hold it there anymore, and then we just let go, and, and it crashes, right? And we go the other way. Um, but this is our life. This is your day, by the way, if you don't. I disagree. Well, this is your day. You start by sleeping. You wake up. You work. You come back. and you're It's just how our days work. It's how, how seasons work. I think this is how life in Christ works. We abide in him. We grow. We bear fruit. We find pruning. Now, last thing I'll say about this is because I'm a pioneer and an entrepreneur and a creative, I love new things. And I get disoriented when I'm expecting growth. Like if, if, the pen, if, the, if I think the pendulum is supposed to be swinging left to right, but in reality, the Lord is pruning me and telling me to slow down and to rest, and he's taking things away from me. It's disorienting when you're expecting new things to come, but in reality to find that things are being removed. It's really like, wait a minute, I thought new things were going to happen, but I'm experiencing pruning, I'm experiencing loss. So it's, a, it's kind of an interesting thing, is occasionally I'll look at this and I'll say, all right, Lord, what season do you have me in? Do you have me in a season of like uh, thinning things out? Do you have me in a season of pruning, um, simplifying? Or do you, have in a, do you have me in a season where you're adding things and you're, you're, you're asking me to do new things? So that may be helpful. I offer that to you to just maybe look at this and go, well, what season are you in? If you're in a season of pruning, I'm sorry, it's probably for your benefit. And what I've experienced is when we just cooperate with the pruning and just run to Jesus and just say, all right, I'm going to hang out with Christ more than I've ever had before, it just it all goes well. Whenever I fight the pruning by saying, no, I'm going to work and get more things done and I don't abide in Christ, it's always a failure. So I thought that's helpful. That's Mike Breen. i got to get, a, get him credit to give credit to him. Um, one thing I noticed, said last week is that the Sabbath existed before the law. Sometimes when we talk about Sabbath to people, especially ministers, they're always like, well, that's the Old Testament law, which is um, fascinating because they never think any of the other nine commandments were exempt from. <laughs> they never say that with murder. <laughs> so we tend to think we're exempt from Sabbath, but not adultery or murder or lying or stealing or coveting or taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, Sabbath existed as a rhythm in creation. So I, I look at Sabbath as it's a rhythm. It's just a rhythm. Um, it's just a rhythm in creation. Now, I'd like to read a, a, uh, an article from Christianity Today that one of my heroes that I speak a lot of, Eugene Peterson, wrote. He wrote on, he wrote on this sense of rhythm, and I can't improve on it. If I tried to improve on it, I w- it would take me more time to say, and it would be worse. So with your permission, I'm just going to read part of the article that he wrote in 2004, I think it was. It's called The Pastor Sabbath, and he's, he's really trying to convince pastors to not take themselves so seriously and to, to take a break. And so there's some insights he offers in here on the rhythm of Sabbath that I think are brilliant and only Peterson can highlight. So I, it's about two pages, so get comfortable. Sabbath means quit. Stop. Take a break. The word itself has nothing devout or holy in it. It's a word about time, denoting our non-use thereof, what we usually call wasting time. The biblical context is the Genesis week of creation. Sabbath is the seventh and final day in which God rested from all his work in which he had done, Genesis 2.2. As we re-enter the sequence of days when God spoke energy and matter into existence, we repeatedly come upon the refrain, 
and there was evening, and there was morning one day. And there was evening, and there was morning a second day. And there was evening, and there was morning a third day. On and on, six times. This is the Hebrew way of understanding day, but it is not ours. Our day begins with an alarm clock ripping the pre-dawn darkness and closes not with evening, but several hours past that when we turn off the electric lights. In our conventional references today, we do not include the night, except for the two or three hours we steal from either end to give us more time to work. Thank you, General Electric. Because our definition of day is so different, we have to make an imaginative effort to understand the Hebrew phrase, evening and morning, one day. More than idiomatic speech is involved here. There is a sense of rhythm. Day is the basic unit of God's creative work. Evening is the beginning of that day. It is the onset of God speaking light, stars, earth, vegetation, animals, man, woman into being. But it is also the time when we quit our activity and go to sleep. When it is evening, I lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep and drift off into semi-consciousness for the next six or eight or ten hours, a state in which I am absolutely non-productive and have no cash value. Then I wake up, rested, jump out of bed, grab a cup of coffee, and rush out the door to get things started. The first thing I discover, a great blow to the ego, is that everything was started hours ago. All the important things got underway while I was fast asleep. When I dash into the workday, I walk into an operation that is half over already. I enter into work in which the basic plan is already established, the assignments given, the operations in motion. Sometimes, still in a stupor, I blunder into the middle of something that is nearly done and go to work thinking I'm starting it. Let it happen to you. But when I do, I interfere with what has already been accomplished. My sincere intentions and cheerful whistle while I work make it no less a blunder in an aggravation. The sensible thing is to ask, where do I fit? Where do you need an extra hand? What still needs to be done? The Hebrew evening and morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep, and God begins his work. As we sleep, he develops his covenant. When we wake and are called out to participate in God's creative action, we respond in faith, in work. But always grace is previous and primary. We wake into a world we didn't make and into a salvation we didn't earn. Evening, God begins, without our help, his creative day. Morning, God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work he initiated. Creation and covenant are sheer grace and there to greet us every morning. George MacDonald once wrote that sleep is God's contrivance for giving us the help he cannot get into us when we are awake. I love that. So true. We read and reread the opening pages of Genesis along with certain sequences of the Psalms and recover these deep elemental rhythms, internalizing the reality in which the strong initial pulse 
is God's creating, saving word. God's providential, sustaining presence. God's grace. As this biblical rhythm works in me, I also discover something else. When I quit my day's work, nothing essential stops. I prepare for sleep, not with a feeling of exhausted frustration because there is so much yet undone and unfinished, but with expectancy. The day is about to begin. God's Genesis words are about to be spoken again. During the hours of my sleep, how will he prepare to use my obedience, service, speech, and morning breaks? I go to sleep to get out of the way for a while. I get into the rhythm of salvation. While we sleep, great and marvelous things far beyond our capacities to invent or engineer or in process. The moon marking the seasons. The lion roaring for its prey. The earthworms aerating the earth. The stars turning in their courses. The proteins repairing our muscles. Our dreaming brains restoring a deeper sanity beneath the gossip and the scheming of all our waking hours. Our work settles into the context of God's work. Human effort is honored and respected, not as a thing in itself, but by its integration into the rhythms of grace and blessing. We experience this grace with our bodies before we apprehend it with our minds. We are attending to a matter of physical and spiritual technology, not ideas, not doctrines, not virtues. We are getting our bodies into a Genesis rhythm. Sabbath extrapolates this basic daily rhythm into the larger context of the month. The turning of the earth on its axis gives us the basic two-beat rhythm, evening and morning. The moon in its orbit introduces another rhythm, the 28-day month, marked by four phases of seven days each. It is this larger rhythm, the rhythm of the seventh day, that we are commanded to observe. Sabbath-keeping presumes the daily rhythm, evening and morning, because we can hardly avoid stopping our work each night as fatigue and sleep overtake us. But the weekly rhythm demands deliberate action. Otherwise, we can go on working on the seventh day, especially if things are gaining momentum. Sabbath-keeping often feels like an interruption, an interference with our routines. It challenges assumptions we gradually build up that our daily work is indispensable in making the world go. But then we find the Sabbath is not an interruption, but a stronger rhythmic measure that confirms and extends the basic beat. Every seventh day, a deeper note is struck. An enormous gong, whose deep sounds reverberate under and over and around the daily percussions of evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. Creation is honored and contemplated, and redemption is remembered and shared. Think about that. It's taken me about five times to read that to get it, so if you need it, I'll be happy to send it to you. That's why he translated the Bible. Um, I want to give you some practical tips to build on last week. Rick Warren, I heard one time share this phrase that I've remembered because it starts with the same letters. That is, we need a plan to divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. There it is. A Baptist preacher can only do that. Divert daily, 
withdraw weekly, abandon annually. And so um, I think I'd like to offer this to you if you're thinking about, well, how do I do this Sabbath thing? How do I do um, live in a rhythm inside of God's creation where I'm literally in rhythm with how the sun and moon and earth are working? I, I think you need a plan daily, weekly, and annually. You could add in there monthly and quarterly if you'd like. Um, this is a great place to start. Uh, divert daily. Um, I first heard of the principle by John Eldridge called micro-Sabbaths. And which he didn't invent, just took him somewhere. But it's, um, uh, how could you have micro-Sabbaths every day? Um, a lot of saints will do morning, noon, and night. And just have like these times around, fixed times around the day, where they stop. And, and just, the world doesn't revolve around me. You know, and that's kind of it, right? And if you don't have any uh, diversion daily, I want to encourage you in the next six weeks, to start with one. Don't try all three. Don't go from zero to three. You'll probably not make it, and then you'll feel ashamed like you messed up. Just start with one for like five minutes or whatever. Um, some of the, 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 the daily micro-sabbaths I do is, I'm not a morning person, um, but my kids are, my wife is, my wife is so um, they tend to wake up at 6.30, so now my alarm goes off at 5.30, and one of my diversions every day is to have an hour in my office, pitch black, cup of coffee with Jesus. Don't always make it, but like today, I was 15 minutes late. <laughs> it was 5.45. But uh, that's, I, the days go better when I begin in quiet silence before the sun's got up with coffee and Jesus. Before you know, it just the days are better. Now, don't think like that I'm in there on my knees praying for you and that like it's somehow holy. Like often it's just, Oh gosh, I'm so tired, you know. But I'm there, right? I'm barely praying, but I'm there. And and as I've practiced it, I've my I've gotten my body has gotten used to it. But sometimes it's just like reading the Psalms of Ascent, which is what I'm doing now, or it's reading utmost for my highest, or it's listening to a devotion, or sometimes it's like I'm not even that tuned in. It's just if I have a little bit of God's presence before my kids get up, it's just better. I'm a better dad. And so uh, you might think of how do you, if you start your day with the alarm clock, grabbing a cup of coffee and rushing out the door, it might not be a recipe for success for you. If it works for you, God bless you, but I don't, I don't know that works for everyone. Um, noontime, uh, Tom gave me this idea a couple years ago, which is like, hey, we should pray for our church for one minute at one o'clock every day. And so you remember saying that? credit you anyway. It was you. So um, in my calendar, I've got at one o'clock, I have a, a, a count every day. It repeats and it sends me an alert on my phone, my computer, on my, on my watch to like stop for one minute at one o'clock and then pray for the church. Well, about a year or a year and a half ago, I thought, well, that's great, but I'm getting my priorities out of, of order. And so now what I do is at one o'clock, it goes off and I pray for my wife first and I pray for my kids by name, and then I pray for you. And uh, it's always an interruption. I'm always doing something at 1 o'clock, but every 1 o'clock, I get this thing on all my devices to stop what I'm doing, step back, pray for Shari, pray for my kids. And again, it's not like this wonderful prayer. Sometimes it's like, Lord, help Shari to feel your blessing today. Help Grayson to pay attention at school. Help Grayson to know he's loved. Please show us the next space to worship. Amen. And I go, but it's just stopping. Just, sometimes it's just stopping and humbling ourselves. This thing. 
And at nighttime, I don't have a great nighttime rhythm yet. Um, I need to work on that. But I just, you know, how can you micro-Sabbath? Uh, John Eldridge, uh, one of his that I love is if it, before every meeting, he'll get there a little bit early, turn off the car, pull the keys out, and hit his head on the steering wheel for 60 seconds and just breathe slowly. Go in the grocery store. Don't just pull in the spot. Get, what if you just went to lunch? Like, try this. When you go to lunch or get home, turn the car off, close your eyes, and just breathe deeply for a minute, and then get on to your thing. And everyone can do that. Everyone can do that. It's great. Uh, withdraw weekly. Um, man, I'm, I was reading uh, this book called Work, wonderful cover, by Ben Witherington III, and there's this great convicting quote, convicted me, I thought I'd share it with you, so I'm not the only one. He says, my humble suggestion would be that Christians need to take their weekends back from where they have been exiled to, the soccer fields, the malls, and of course, the workplace. If they want freedom, then they need to know how to limit their activities. Christians need to do a better job of saying no. If a whole weekend without work is too much to expect, then follow Barbara Brown Taylor's suggestion about taking many Sabbaths all during the week. A few hours here, there, and yonder. I would argue that, in principle, weekends should not be work time, but rather be worship time, rest time, sleep time, family time, visiting time, and play time. He goes on to say, too few persons have reflected meaningfully about a theology of play. How about that? Uh, in this book, he, he kind of goes on to say um, that we, in, our, in Western America, we have um, lumped the Sabbath day with the Lord's day and put them together. And then if you have a bad experience with church, you tend to throw both of them away. And then the weekend just becomes a two-day off, two days off on the weekend to go do errands kind of how a lot of people treat it. And um, the Lord's Day is Sunday, the day that we, we, we uh, celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And I think it's possible. Most people kind of lump that with their Sabbath, and you can do that. Um, but, but it's just helpful to like, think through. Um, the early church kept Sabbath Friday night to Saturday night. And then Sunday was when they started to worship because the resurrection happened on Sunday and not Saturday. And so it's just it's great to think through that, that the New Testament Christians viewed the Lord's Day and Sabbath as two different disciplines. So I don't know what you do with that, but good luck. Um, abandon annually. If, if it's possible, it's not possible for everybody. But if it's in your power to take a long vacation, I highly recommend you do it. Um, not until like two years ago did I ever take a long vacation. Usually it was a week here or a week there. And I, I noticed that it takes me about five days to unwind. And just as I start to rest, it's time to get back to work. And I was never rested. And then I took two weeks together, and it was a game changer. And then I took three weeks together, and it was a game changer. And so um, if, if you had the ability to do longer periods of vacation or rest or retreat or staycations, uh, and if you've never done that, I highly recommend you experiment with that. Um, I don't have a great plan for monthly or quarterly, but I think it would be good to, to do that. Um, the last thing I want to close with is I just this whole fall, this is our last week on this, is just as a pastor, I want to say 
Pay attention to your rhythms. It's so easy as Americans to get accustomed to you know, Amazon Prime and things being delivered to you, and, and we can like automate our life, and like we can get on this cruise control where bills pay themselves, and you get on auto pay. And, and, and I'm so grateful for all those technologies. What happens to me, and I, I want to encourage it, if, I don't know if it happens to you, but is I can allow my life just to get on cruise control. And I tend to just respond to whatever the road is doing in the moment. And then suddenly I'm not living my life. I'm not leading my life. And then I start to get overwhelmed with all the commitments and all the party requests. And December is coming, which means there's going to be a lot of Christmas parties. And I'm going to get a lot of Christmas cards. And I'm going to get a lot of Christmas party invitations, which I'm super grateful for. But I need to step back, and you probably need to do it too, and say, I probably can't attend every Christmas party in December and keep my sanity. And so we have to pay attention to our rhythms. We have to pay attention to how we spend our time. If you're wise, you don't spend beyond your financial limits. If you're wise, you should not spend beyond the limits of your time. We all have 24 hours. We all have seven days in a week. We all have different energies, but we all have the same amount of time. I just want to encourage you to, um, to pay attention to your Sabbath. Pay attention to how you celebrate the resurrection. Pay attention to how you work. Uh, what time do you wake up? What time do you go to bed? How do you do all these things? I can't tell you how to do them all. All I can do is say, you should look at them and pay attention to them and ask the Lord's leading. Um, don't allow capitalism to define your work. Don't allow envy and greed and comparing to define how you should work and what type of job you should have. And then don't allow consumerism to define how you rest. A lot of people don't know how to rest, but they know how to consume. And consuming things is not the same thing as finding true restoration. We've harped on that a lot. The gospel is simply, apart from Jesus, we're toast. We're just, we're poor in spirit. We're bankrupt spiritually without him. And, uh, and none of this is intended to say, you've got to do better so God will love you. It's just, hey, let's pay attention to the rhythms of abiding and growing and fruitfulness and make sure that Christ is our starting point, our centering point. One last quote I want to read before we celebrate communion. is from Abraham Joshua Heschel, who wrote one of the best books on Sabbath. He says, we usually think that the earth is our mother, that time is money, and profit our mate. The seventh day is a reminder that God is our father, that time is life, and that the spirit is our mate. Jesus, we just uh, confess to you that you are the true vine. Not religion, not nationalism, not politics, not the economy, not business, not profit, not agriculture, not eating and drinking. Jesus, you are the vine and the true. And Father, we just submit 
to your vine dressing, to your discipline, to your correction, to your admonishment, to your pruning. God, and we just surrender our lives, both our working lives and the lives of our rest, the lives of our play, the lives of pleasure. 100% of our calendar, where we surrender to you and we say, to the vine dresser, come and organize us. Wherever you see there needs to be pruning, for whatever reason, we just submit to your pruning hand. Lord, my, I don't want to. I don't want pruning. But I trust you. And I know that you have my fruitfulness and my joy. And I just confess I'm not the vine. I'm the branch. And I need a lot of support from you, Lord. In this season and in the coming season, whether it's times of blessing or times of loss, Father, I look to you. And I welcome you. I humble myself. I surrender all to you, Jesus. Thank you for the crushing and for the pressing, for the testing, for the new wine that you're producing in our church. We worship you, Lord. Come. We thank you for being present with us in this building. We lift our hearts to you. We give you thanksgiving and praise for being our Lord and Savior who stretched out his arms on the hardwood of the cross.